Hello and welcome to Agents of Nonprofit. My name is Alexander Lapa, and I'm here to speak with everyday superheroes helping nonprofits using technology. Joining me today is Heather Burright to talk about how we move from lead to strategy to execution. Heather, welcome to the show. Thanks, Alex. Thanks for having me. So for people who are hearing you for the very first time, can you explain a bit about who you are and what you do today? Sure. So I'm a learning and leadership development consultant and the founder and principal consultant at Skillmasters Market. And I, with my consulting business, I work for mostly large national nonprofits where I'm able to take an eye for the larger kind of learning strategy, but also the creative design process. And I've, over the last uh, several years, created hundreds of learning experiences from in-person training, self-paced experiences, virtual classroom, and have worked with dozens of leaders to help them achieve their organizational's professional development goals. A hundred learning experiences, quite a number. How did you get started <laughs> working with nonprofits? Um, like, where does your origin story, or what I call your superhero origin story, how was that? How did you start? <laughs> I'm no superhero, but I appreciate that, especially as a guest on your podcast. So I uh, worked for a national nonprofit uh, for about eight years prior to starting my consulting business. And prior to that, I worked in some other industries as well, always focused on kind of the adult side, the people side of the organization. I love supporting the mission of so many great organizations by helping them invest in their people. So for me personally, I believe that people are worthy of investment and that investing in your people makes them feel valued and gives them new skills and a new passion for their work. Uh, And I also believe that people excel when they know what is expected of them and they can show up authentically at work. Um, And then finally, I believe that organizations are better when they empower their people to operate from their strongest capabilities. And so that, I guess maybe that's my superpower. I don't know. But that's why I work relentlessly to create these kind of dynamic, people-centric solutions for each nonprofit's most important asset, their people. Awesome. And I wouldn't undervalue yourself. I I do believe you are a superhero. (laughs) Maybe not with a cape necessarily, but definitely someone who's, who's making a big impact in the nonprofit world. So thank you for that. That's it. I'm buying a cape tomorrow. (laughs) <laughs> so you use the word once, and I'm not sure if you did it already on this, uh, already in the recording or in a previous conversation. You mentioned this word learning strategy. I'm curious to know a bit more about what do you, what does a learning strategy mean to you and how does it apply to nonprofits? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, sometimes I think we elevate words to to be lofty and, and hard to understand um, and throw up, throw them out because they sound sophisticated, right? Um, but to me, a learning strategy is really just a roadmap that outlines what people need to do to be successful within the organization and then how the organization can help them achieve that success. So you're going to have kind of your, your big picture goals of where you're headed, what your people need to do to be successful to help you achieve those goals. Um, and then you'll use that to kind of drill down and say, here are the things that we can do. Here are the solutions that help us meet that strategy to meet those goals that we've outlined as important to the organization. It's kind of, it sounds like a kind of data-driven approach that you learn from existing strategies. You learn from previous strategies that you bring on to the table and then the nonprofit can adapt and continue learning all the way through, right? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say the learning strategy, while it probably is going to get a, a, final product at some point is never really final because the organization is constantly changing. The people within the organization are constantly changing either because of turnover or because they're growing and they're learning and they're doing different things. And so their needs are going to change on a regular basis. And so it's something that constantly gets updated and lives with the organization. 
there are so many organizations and people in general who are always afraid of change, but change is so normal. It, I don't know of a single successful organization that doesn't keep up with certain technologies or strategies or approaches. Like if you, if you are stable, if you just stay with your initial version of whatever it is that you do and you don't evolve and enhance and improve, I believe you just become a dinosaur. So it's great that uh, change becomes a regular part of your, your dictionary, uh, you know, day to day. Absolutely. So I'm curious really about the strategy that you help with nonprofits, starting from, you know, how you, uh, how they get in touch with you or even better than that is how would they know they have a problem and before they even start realizing that we need to solve this problem, what would be a symptom that a nonprofit has in order for them to say, maybe we need to find some help with this? Yeah, so there's a number of different things that can pop up uh, for a nonprofit. Sometimes I'm brought in because a nonprofit is looking to scale a program or a service, and so they need to prepare their staff to scale that program or service. And so that might be one need or one symptom that shows up. Uh, sometimes it's about leadership. And so it's looking at, you know, developing staff with essential leadership skills that they need for their roles or strengthening uh, the next generation of leaders or things like that. Um, sometimes it can be around um, diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, creating a culture where everyone feels like they belong, creating a shared understanding of DEI so that everyone's kind of operating um, from a similar um, page. So there are different things that can cause a need, something new that you're offering. You need staff to be able to have the skills or know what actions they need to take in order to be effective with that. So I say anything that involves a change, you mentioned change, anything that involves a change to the organization is often going to involve a change with, with staff. And that's when you might start to feel those symptoms and need to bring someone in. And then... Typically, when they approach you, do they already know what they need, or is it part of your process to be able to assess the, the what needs to be done and, and maybe the steps of how to get there? Yeah, I'd say a little bit of both. I think a lot of times with people needs, we tend to jump to training. Well, I need to scale this program, so I need to train my staff, or we're bringing in this new service, and so I need to train my staff. So training kind of becomes the cure that people look to, but it's a solution, not usually the only solution. And so, yes, I think sometimes they come, they know that they need something. They might have an idea of what it is they need. Um, but what I typically do is, I always say I take a strategic and compassionately human-centered approach to my work. So what I typically do is I look at the organization's strategies, their goals, their priorities, what is it that the organization is trying to achieve? But then I also look at the learner, the staff or the volunteers. What is their day-to-day -day experience like? What expertise are they already bringing to the table? What challenges or roadblocks might they face as they're looking to upskill or reskill for, you know, the change that's happening? Um, what resources do they need or do they have so that we can build upon those things? And then the solution really is at the intersection of those things. And it might be training um, or it might be something else. And that's okay. You mentioned you typically work with large nonprofits. Is there a certain ideal client that you think is well suited for your services? Or do you have like, um, what are your boundaries? Would you work with really small ones or really large ones? Are there certain industries you rather work with or not work with? What would be the criteria, yeah. I guess, that you would like to see in order to, to engage with a client? 
Yeah, absolutely. So um, I don't work with large national nonprofits just because I want to. I, I would say I do. I do love the the size and scale and the complexity that they bring. Um, most of the time, it's larger national nonprofits because they have the number of staff uh, and that level of complexity that gives them a return on the investment for custom work. So custom competencies or custom training or custom leadership assessments or coaching, right? They have the number of staff that they need to feel like they're getting that return on that investment. Small and and mid-sized nonprofits absolutely 100% um, have needs when it comes to people if they have more than one staff person, right? Even one staff person could could benefit, obviously, if you're looking at leadership development and things like that. So if you have someone in place, if you have a team in place, absolutely, you could benefit from someone looking at uh, where your organization is headed and what your people's needs are. Um, I think it's just a matter of whether the best solution for you is a custom solution that allows you to reach your staff and, and that navigate that level of complexity or whether an off-the-shelf solution is, is a better fit for you. And then once you've done the qualification process and they love you and you love them, what would a typical engagement look like? Is it usually a, a short-term thing where you come in, you know, plan some ideas or strategies and then leave? Or do you typically work from end to end all the way from strategy to execution? Yeah, so I I generally manage every step in the process. Um, I follow uh, in a, kind of a traditional Audi model, which is uh, a model used in the instructional design space. So we start with analysis so that we can uncover what those needs are. And that could include reviewing external resources, um, internal documents, whether it's the strategic plan uh, or job descriptions or whatever it is that you have uh, within the organization that would help me uncover those needs. I also will typically do um, focus groups or interviews with the learner, the staff, or whoever's going to be receiving that learning solution, um, conversations with subject matter experts, other internal partners, uh, just to give me kind of a landscape of what's happening within the organization, what those needs are, what the experiences of the people are. And then once we have that, we can move into the design and development phase. That's where we start to create the learning objectives, the activities that will be needed to help learners achieve those objectives. So for me personally, I love to create things that are action focused, meaning they will they'll actually create a behavior change in the learners. And so it's not just knowledge or awareness level training. And I love to, when we're doing that, I love to acknowledge the experiences and expertise that the staff bring with them. So I typically design things that feel very inclusive and kind of honor the learner's autonomy within the experience. Once everything is developed, we can start that implementation process. Uh, And that looks different depending on the solution. So uh, some things are kind of a self-paced e-learning type of situation. Uh, So that would be you get everything developed. It goes into kind of a testing mode, making sure it works, getting the tech involved uh, with if they have a learning management system or things like that. Um, If it's virtual instructor-led, then we would be getting uh, trainers ready so that they're able to deliver that virtually. If it's a video, right, it's what happens in the implementation process varies a little bit based on what that solution is. And then we also want to make sure that we have an evaluation process in place so that we can continuously get feedback and iterate as needed. So that's kind of how I would walk through the process um, with a client. And I try to to manage as much of that as I can so that the client isn't overwhelmed. It really is a partnership. We're collaborative in the process um, and we're able to create the best solution for their organization. Let's dive into the um, the first step, the analysis. 
you, you say you try to gather as much information as you can about the nonprofit, about the learning, the, the experts, any documentation they have. What other are the main and important steps you take in order to be able to really understand you know, where the problem is or where the, the nonprofit wants to go towards? Yeah, I think, you know, I do some of that kind of research on my own independently, just so I can have a sense of what's happening within the organization. But I think most of that really comes out of conversation. It's important to listen to the people that are going to be impacted by if it's a change, the change process, if it's a particular learning solution that we're talking about, who's going to be involved in that learning solution. It's important to think about the organizational culture as a whole and all the different people that are involved in that. And so most of that analysis, most of the the good findings really come just from listening. I imagine most of these uh, meetings are done virtually these days, right? There's not too much done in person. Have you noticed a big shift or is that true before I actually make that assumption? (laughs) It is. It is true. Because if you're working nationally too, it must be difficult to move around so much. Have you noticed any differences, major differences, as I would say, between the in-person and virtual, have people at these at this point in time gotten used to the virtual meetings and, and collaborate well enough, or are you, do you find that there's still something lacking? I mean, there's always going to be something lacking in terms of virtual versus in-person, but have you noticed a, a big difference at this point? I'm not in the process. I think the the process of meetings, kind of uncover needs and things like that, <clears throat> that has been. I did a lot of that virtually prior to 2020, when there was this kind of shift to virtual. Um, And so that for me feels very natural. Um, I haven't noticed any big challenges in that. I think the bigger shift is when we're asking people to learn virtually and we're asking people to facilitate virtually. That's not necessarily something that people are as used to. And so I think that's where we start to see some of those challenges come in. So if virtual instructor-led, for example, becomes the, the solution, then there are some challenges and some complexities to work through with that. For facilitating, do you mean something like whiteboarding or something else? Yeah, so facilitation is kind of an approach that I build into training when I create training. Um, And so instead of it being uh, a subject matter expert who is telling people what they need to know, it is more of a discussion where people are discovering what it is that they need to know. Um, Because at the end of the day, we want them to do something different, right? We don't want them just to know something different. We want them to do something different. And so having that discovery process, bringing them into the conversation helps to create buy-in for the change that we're looking for. And so facilitating in in an in-person classroom uh, can be a little bit easier. If you have a group of people together in a room and you ask a question, eventually someone will answer it because there is this little bit of peer pressure, I guess, that happens, positive peer pressure. The, the facilitator can make eye contact and all of a sudden it's like, oh, I should answer that. That person, the facilitator is looking at me, right? Um, and you don't have that in a virtual setting. So the facilitator can set up the best question <laughs> they've ever asked and be left with crickets in the room because you don't necessarily have that feeling of pressure to answer the question. You aren't necessarily making direct eye contact with the facilitator. And so it can, the question can go unanswered for a period of time and silence in the virtual room feels much longer than silence in a physical space. Um, And so that's where some of the challenges come in. So when I'm specifically designing and developing a training that's going to be delivered virtually. I have some 
tricks, tips, tricks that I kind of build into the training to make that go more smoothly in the virtual space. One behavior I noticed when moving to virtual is that people are not always as ready or readily available to offer an opinion. It's much easier in a virtual world, especially if you're in a group setting, to just be more silent versus in person. I think, at least for me, at least, I'm more likely to to speak up and say, hey, wait a minute, um, you know, we need to address this and to bring up concerns rather than just sit back and let someone else um, take the rein. It's so easy to get like, you know, two or three, let's say, principal speakers in a virtual meeting talking and, and chatting, and the other participants just are more witnesses than anything else. They're not actively involved versus in person. It's an easier environment to speak up even on the smallest uh, nuances. I guess you, you agree with that. Yep. Absolutely. One of the things that I often will do with a virtual setting within the training context is instead of starting with that open-ended question that's going to generate discussion, which you can start with in an in-person space, in a virtual space, it, it is a little more silent. Or like you said, you get that same one or two people that are always answering. And so in a virtual space, I usually start with a closed question. So raise your hand if you have ever experienced this or give me a yes in chat if you've had if you face this particular situation now you have a list of people who are saying in a very easy low barrier engagement method they're saying yes i have something that i could share basically and so then the facilitator is able to look at that and help encourage people to share in a way that maybe they wouldn't have otherwise that makes total sense, actually. A low barrier question, closed answer. It's it's much easier. It's more bite-sized than an open-ended one, which requires people to think. That's a really great strategy, actually. Yeah. And if you do the raise your hand feature or the type in chat, right, people are very used to uh, kind of typing in chat or being in online forums. And so that's it's it is a low barrier entry for engagement. Love it. After the facilitation, if there is a facilitation that's needed... And you've decided, let's go with um, leadership because I like that topic out of the three you mentioned. You mentioned uh, new features or new changes, leadership and DEI. Let's, let's talk about leadership for a second. Once that's figured out and determined, where would you or how would you know when it's time to move to the execution phase or the implementation phase, you called it, in ADI? Yeah. So I think we, when I do, when I work through this and manage the projects, we've done the analysis. We kind of have the landscape. We know where the organization is headed. We know what the learners' experiences are going, are currently and what we want them to be. We design and we develop the materials needed in order to help them achieve those particular goals. Typically with the development cycle, um, I will use a two review process. So the first review is just a draft. We're going to get as much feedback as we can. Uh, If we can get feedback from the end user, great. If we can get feedback from partners, if there are, um, you know, multiple people who are going to be affected by it, we're going to get that feedback in that first round. The second round is a second review. It's a little, it's really close to final at this point. And so we want to make sure we're also getting approvals as needed on that during that review cycle. And so if someone, if there's someone who's going to be accountable more or less for the solution that gets created and they haven't been involved in the process, then we want to make sure they are involved at that stage so that we're getting that approval process. Then we consider that to be approved contingent upon any final changes that are recommended during that review cycle. We're able to make those final updates and start to get ready for implementation. And so that is um, 
again, it looks a little bit different depending on the solution, but let's say it's a training for a leadership training, um, as you said, for leadership development. And so we move into that phase. It could be something that needs to be piloted. And so if that's the case, we're going to test that with some end users. We're going to gather feedback and then we're going to look at, you know, how are we going to roll this out more or less to the other uh, people within the organization who need it. Sometimes that's not uh, an option depending on time or, um, you know, other particular needs within the organization. And so it's going to skip that piloting phase. We're going to roll it out as is, um, but we do want those evaluation pieces in place so that we are collecting that feedback along the way so that when there is time, you can go back and make changes as needed to uh, that particular solution. Do you have a formalized or even an informal checklist that you go through before you go to the execution phase? I imagine you have to make sure that the, the organization is ready for the change, that the people are already you know, excited about it in some capacity. You've identified certain champions depending on the nature of the project. Like, Do you already have that kind of checks and balances to make sure that, yeah, we're all on the right path here and uh, this will be a success once we get to the next phase? You know, I don't have a checklist. That's a really good idea. It probably help um, in some of the conversations during the process as well. You know, I I always kind of think about my work as being at the intersection of instructional design, change management, and DEIB. And so um, I'm able to kind of, as I'm managing the project, as I'm designing and developing, I'm able to kind of build in some of those things. So you mentioned like the buy-in, the change, that kind of thing. I'm looking at that and I'm working, I'm using change management principles as I work with the nonprofit uh, point of contact that I'm working with. Um, but also I'm building that into that particular solution. So if it's a training, I'm building some of those change management principles into the training so that we are creating that awareness. So we are looking at what motivates people. We are looking at, you know, what skills they, they need in order to be effective with the change. And so some of it is just built into my approach, but a checklist would probably be really helpful. What about the flip side of that uh, question? What about red flags that you see where you say, oh, hang on a second, this isn't going in the right direction. We do need to take a step back or take a pause and correct this before we do move to the next phase. Yeah, I think the biggest red flag is just when there seems to be a disconnect between what the nonprofit point of contact wants or the subject matter expert wants versus what we're seeing the learners need. Uh, it doesn't happen often, um, but there are times when a subject matter expert, for example, uh, maybe somebody who has run this particular program for you know years and years, they're familiar with it, they know it in and out, they're exactly who you want to be involved in the project because they are so knowledgeable, but there is a disconnect sometimes between them and the end user, the learner, just because they might be at different places within their career path. They have different years of experience. They have different needs. Maybe they're bringing different expertise to the table. And so sometimes there is a little bit of a disconnect between what the person that you're working with says is needed and what you discover is needed. And honestly, it kind of goes back to the listening and the conversations and building those trusting relationships as you're working with nonprofit clients and, and really looking at, you know, I'm I'm here not to tell you what to do, but really to to collaborate with you, to partner with you, to guide where I can, where I have, you know, expertise or where I discover things in the process. And so kind of working with them through that relationship and through that listening is really where you kind of start to navigate through some of those red flags. The visualization of a guide, you know, hand in hand, side by side, I think is one that 
works really well. It's it's you're, you're right. We're not leading. We're not telling them what to do. It's you know we'll get through this together. Here's what I can contribute. Here's what you need to contribute, and then together we'll get what we need to get. Absolutely, I agree. Another another interesting question I'd like to to know about because I come across this every once in a while is I don't want to call it a saboteur, but someone who needs to be convinced, someone who might be skeptical about the approach, someone who you know is the the one you need to convince. Let's maybe use that wording. Uh, any strategies that you have for working with someone like that in within an organization? Yeah, I think you know often in a larger project you're going to have someone who might be a little bit more resistant. I think. Again, I go back to those trusting relationships. I think that is key to, to anything else. I think also because in the process we're, we're listening and we're hearing from staff and you're kind of building your case a little bit along the way for what those needs are. It's not just me from outside the organization saying, this is what you need to do, right? But it's us uncovering together what people are saying and, and what um, you know, is resonating with people, what they already feel like they have a grasp on, that kind of thing. So you have some some data, some stories that you're able to share back um, and build that case along the way. You know, I, there are probably in any large project, you're going to have someone who resists a little bit. Sometimes they're more vocal than others. <laughs> um, but I think going back to uh, what you've learned is really helpful. I'm also looking at, you know, what is it that they are ultimately trying to achieve, right? Because a lot of times they're resisting for a particular reason. Something is important to them and they're passionate about something and we just haven't hit on what that is. And so what is it that's motivating them to be involved in the particular project? Uh, And what is that thing that is they're looking for, that they, an outcome that they want or a thing that they want to see, a thing they want to hear in order to feel good about where the project is headed. And if you can identify that a lot of times they will start to slowly jump on board and be a, a, a large part of the project uh, because you are building that case along the way, using those change management principles and speaking to them in a way that really resonates with them. Well, the silent resistor must be the worst. I remember a few years ago, I guess many years ago at this point, when I was um, taking university class about relationships, they were saying that couples that argue uh, do not have a strong indicator of a bad relationship or a relationship that's going to fail. It's the ones that are silent, the ones that don't communicate, that's actually a stronger indicator that the relationship is going to fail. Because at least when you're arguing, you're communicating. Maybe you just have to still figure out you know, the differences and, and how to proceed, but you're, you're still communicating. It's the ones that are not communicating that are a lot more at peril. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And uh, perhaps that's a good time to use some of the the virtual facilitation strategies, right? Like you're getting people, giving people a chance to engage in kind of a low barrier way. Maybe that's, you know, something, an approach that you take within the project as well, just to make sure that you are hearing from, you know, everyone in the project, even those who might tend to be a little more silent in the process. Now that we've gone to the execution phase or the implementation phase, what does the day-to-day engagement look like with you? How do you interact with the with the nonprofit on a weekly or daily basis? Yeah, so I am often creating a solution and walking away. So execution for me is preparing the organization to own the learning. So that could mean training people to train the training. Uh, it could mean preparing learning and development teams to hear feedback, adapt the training based on feedback. It could be preparing a, a tech solution to work within whatever technology they have within the organization. 
So the execution uh, looks a little bit different uh, depending on the solution that was decided, but also because I do generally hand over the solution to the organization, they're able to own that solution and uh, use it uh, forever, as long as it makes sense for them to use it. Um, and then they also have the rights to adapt it as they're learning more from their audience. And so uh, execution looks a little bit different than maybe other consultants that are working with nonprofits. Um, but in the learning and development space, I'm really wanting them to have that ownership uh, and the ability to adapt, iterate as needed. I love the approach of teaching how to fish instead of providing the fish. When you say handoff then, I mean, so you've, you've already supplied them with everything they need to do. Do you do like a train the trainer model or do you just provide documentation to people? Like how does a training model work? Maybe it's a better question to ask. Yeah. So it's, it's up to the organization and what they need. Sometimes they're going to have one or two people who are going to be the trainers and they've been involved in the project. And so it might be more conversation with those one or two people to make sure they feel like they have everything they need and, and are able to deliver on that training. Sometimes it is going into a more formal kind of training system that exists within the organization. And so a train the trainer model is uh, something that's needed. And so then I would work on the train the trainer model as well. So throughout the whole engagement, you're obviously using a certain number of technologies, applications, you know, virtual meetings, you might use Zoom or something. And I'm curious to know what apps do you like to use? What do you find are the most useful in various uh, types of engagements? Yeah, so tech should support the strategy and the learner's needs. That always comes first. Um, so the tech varies based on the solution uh, that you decide to use. So um, if you decide the solution needs to be something that is self-paced, for example, so staff can access it on their own time, um, then Articulate makes great e-learning tools. And that might be a technology that you seek out and decide to use. If you decide that you really want a subject matter expert in the room or you want a skilled facilitator to be able to have those conversations and bring people in, uh, but people are spread out geographically, then Zoom may be the solution. You mentioned Zoom. So it really is going to depend on what solution you decided to, to build. And that is based on what you learned from the organization and the audience, the learners in that analysis process. So that all comes first. And then the tech is there to support. Um, and it generally just depends on what it is that you're offering. And on the client side, then the nonprofit, the typical technologies or apps you recommend to them using or adjust if they need to adjust, what is your impact on their technology? Yeah, so um, I definitely recommend Zoom if they're going to be doing virtual instructor-led training. Um, I, it has a lot of functionality in order to create those engaging virtual environments, and it's it's pretty uh, intuitive to use. So even people who are not used to being on Zoom calls every day, it, they can usually get the hang of it pretty quickly with some some pretty minor instructions on how to navigate different things within the Zoom application. So Zoom is one that I generally recommend. E-learning, you know, I think it depends. A lot of times an organization already has a software that they're using, um, in which case it's more important for for me as the consultant to, you know, understand and learn what they already have, because again, I'm going to walk away. And so I want them to have something that they're comfortable with in order they in order for them to be able to make those changes as they're, they're learning and, and evolving as an organization. So if they use Articulate, then that's what I would recommend that we use in the development process in, in our particular project. Because again, I want them to be comfortable and I want them to feel 
good about owning that and being able to make those changes in the future. Yeah, it sounds like you don't want to make too many technology changes because you're really there to improve the process and just use what they have more than completely flip their world around and say, okay, you guys are using the wrong CRM or you guys are using the wrong meeting room type of application. So I understand how that makes sense. Yeah, there are sometimes uh, like supplemental tools that make sense to include in a training. So there might be something like Kahoot is, a, is I don't know if you've ever heard of Kahoot, but Kahoot is like a kind of a digital quiz type of game that can be used in uh, an in-person or a virtual environment. People use their smart devices to engage with the quiz. And so if it looks like something that would be really valuable within the session, then I'll have a conversation with them about, you know, is this something that you're interested in purchasing and, and bringing into your kind of suite of tools? And if it is, then we'll build that in. But it's more of a supplemental solution than it is something kind of bigger that's going to impact the way that organization works as a whole. No, that makes sense. And aside from technology, are there any other major factors that you consider when doing an engagement? Is there a certain, just, you know, overall, it's a, I guess it's a really open question, but I'm just curious to know if there's any other levers or any other elements that you have to consider when doing an engagement. Yeah, I, I kind of fall back on those instructional design best practices. Again, I follow the ADDIE model. It's A-D-D-I-E, Analysis, Design, Development, Implementation, and Evaluation. Following that really allows you to learn a lot about what those needs are. And so you can learn what those staff are experiencing, what the organization needs, those kinds of things. So it really is a great process to kind of uncover those needs, which are always going to be important factors to consider. Um, I would also add change management into that. So I use the ADCAR model for change management. That's always important and will uncover some of those major factors as well. And then I also take that approach of DEIB. I want to make sure that people feel like they can contribute, like they have you know, a voice within the room and that that is recognized. I want them to feel heard and valued and, you know, known or respected in that space. And so taking that approach also, I think, is is part of it, right? You want to make sure that you're thinking about those things as you're creating whatever that solution is. If it's a training, for example, you want to be thinking about how am I creating an inclusive space? How am I making sure that people will feel like they belong within this space and really thinking about all of those different aspects those all become major factors in, in what gets created and how it gets created. Well, I love the fact that all these models already incorporate these kind of open-ended or other concerns. This way, you know, you're not missing out on, on much. And I apologize. I thought it was ADI, but it's A-D-D-I-E. Is that what you? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. Cool. I'm learning something today. Thanks. So I'm curious to know, taking a step back then, once your engagement is complete, what are the typical outcomes that a nonprofit can expect? Yeah, so um, I always say, you know, we're going to create the exact solution that your organization needs so that you get outcomes that are aligned to your organization's priorities. Again, we're looking at the organization and what they what they need. It's relevant to you and your audience because, again, we're also looking at the, the learners. It's designed to increase comprehension, but most importantly, promote behavior change. So, again, focused on the action and not just the awareness piece. And then it's also going to be measurable and actionable because we want you to be able to evaluate the solution make sure it's working, be able to adapt it and be able to prove that 
uh, it was worthwhile. That's something that in this particular space in the learning and development space is often important to other senior leaders to know how this investment is going to make a difference within the organization. And so we're creating things that are measurable and actionable so that you can you can go back and say, this is what this particular solution did for us as an organization and did for our staff. I think it's a critical factor to to have actionable and measurable. You actually have metrics that indicate the the impact that you had. So I'm really happy to hear that you you do that and you enforce it. I'm curious to know also then what would be in your or what is in your short term future. Where would you like to see yourself uh, or the state of things in a in the short term? Yeah. So for me, I am focused right now on growing my podcast. I know that I won't be able to work with every nonprofit that's out there as much as I would love to. Um, And so I want to be able to reach more learning and development leaders with topics that are of interest to them. And I want to not just share, you know, my experiences, but also bring in other experts who are able to add more value so that learning and development leaders, you know, know how to, you know, center their learners' needs and know how to create behavior change within their organization or whatever it is that's most important to them. And so that's a focus for me. Um, I also am looking to expand a little bit into an agency model just so I can work with more nonprofits and help them have the outcomes that they're looking for. Awesome. This has been great, Heather. Thank you so much. Where can people find more about you online? Yeah, so I have a website, skillmastersmarket.com. I'm also active on LinkedIn. So that's a great place to find me as well. And then my podcast that I mentioned is Learning for Good. And it's available on Apple Podcasts as well as other podcasting platforms. We'll put all the links in the show notes below. Thank you, Heather, for joining me today. Thank you, Alex. All right, that's it for today. I'm Alexander Lapa, and I hope you join me again in the next Agents of Nonprofit.